0: We have had audits where we found plenty of lost revenue. And in fact, in one recent audit, we found that the clinic could have billed 41% more than they had. Can you imagine what you could do with a revenue increase of 41%?
1: Hello, this is Dave Gans, Senior Fellow of Industry Affairs. Today I have the opportunity to talk to Beverly Gibson to discuss uh, issues with auditing, Compliance, and also potential fraud when it comes to coding. Beverly, do you want to give us some of your background?
0: Well, sure, Dave. I am a senior industry advisor for MGMA. I have a couple of master's degrees and some certifications. Some of my certifications are in coding and auditing. I have an additional certification in uh, healthcare fraud auditing. So I am a CIFA. I'm a certified internal health fraud auditor. At some point, I'll tell you a little bit about what I do.
1: Let's first talk about audits. Overall, I know talking to a number of administrators that when you, they think of the concept of audit, first they think of accounting. Of course, obviously, that's not what we're doing. We're looking at audits, coding practices, and how doctors are paid, and whether they're in compliance with either regulation or contracts. When you talk to an organization about having an audit, what do you tell them?
0: What we always want to do when we're doing an audit or we're planning for an audit, we like to look at the codes that are require the most documentation. Because obviously they are the most difficult. So if we want to provide good service for our clients, our members, we say give us your most difficult codes and this would be the levels four and five in the E&M codes or level three if it's inpatient and then we like to get the new patients because those actually require even more documentation. Yeah.
1: Now I presume you're looking at the medical record as well as the, the billing. Files.
0: Yes so we look at two things we look at what was billed And then we look at the documentation. We want to know whether or not the documentation supports what was billed. We also sometimes find that, oh, they could have been billing for other things that they were not billing for.
1: I suspect where you're finding the missed bills are most often occurred, I'd expect hospital admissions, you know, where things occur that may not be billed because they're off-site. Uh, surgical procedures are complex uh, medical cases. Is that correct?
0: It can occur across the board, Dave, but a lot of them are these either new patients that are that's outpatient and would be the higher levels. And then uh, in addition to that for inpatient could be the initial encounters and that would be at the highest level there. But sometimes there are some really specific guidelines. That must be followed, and that's the one I'd like to tell you about. This involved a teaching hospital.
1: Oh, now, is it, I presume this is a recent audit that you did. It was. Uh, and, of course, I also understand that you don't have to be on site to do the audits. You can work remotely. So tell us about the experience of this teaching hospital.
0: Right. So we were sent some, a lot of medical records for nine providers. I think we ended up doing about 130 records. The way that we look at these is we look at how many dollars were billed and then we say of those dollars that were billed, what was undercoded? How much more could you have made had you coded things properly? But how much is considered to be an overpayment? You received money to which you were not entitled. And by the way, the the reason we do that is because that's the way CMS does it. They do it as a percentage of dollars. In this particular one, there were services that were billed for over $16,000. That's what we looked at. Very few dollars were undercoded. They didn't lose a whole lot in that department. But in overpayments. There were more than $6,000 of the original $16,000 that were an overpayment. They were not entitled to that money. The main reason is because they did not follow PATH guidelines. PATH is physician at teaching hospital. So if you want to use a resident to assist you at a teaching hospital, that's okay. You want to bill the federal government for it? That's okay. But you're going to have to follow these very strict Mm -hmm. guidelines, PATH guidelines. They did not follow the very strict PATH guidelines. The ramifications for them are now they actually have a problem. We can't just look forward. CMS says that we have to look Backwards, Mm -hmm. so not only do they have to pay back this six thousand and some dollars on a voluntary basis. On a voluntary basis, it's self. They they are self-identified overpayments, but it's it's worse than that now. They have to investigate. They know they've got a problem. They have to investigate that. They have to start extrapolating what was done here on just the $16,000, and they have to see how widespread that was. They actually have to look back for a period of six years and figure out how many dollars they got that they weren't entitled to, and they're going to have to pay that back.
1: What what have you seen when you've been either on site at a at a primary care practice or for example busy surgical doc, you know independent doctor's office or if you've just reviewed their their records remotely? So what are you seeing at a physician's office, which is probably I expect very different from a teaching hospital?
0: Well, in that case, uh, there are a lot there's a lot of misunderstanding about E codes, E and M services total approximately 40% of all Medicare payments. So it's a big deal. And actually Medicare payments in general total about 15% of all federal spending. So we're talking a lot of money here on ENM services. And unfortunately, ENM services are very complex, very difficult to code. There are about 50 different elements that have to be looked at. What usually ends up happening is that they are overcoding. I will tell you though that a, a few that we've done, they're they're they are undercoding. If they are intentionally undercoding because they want to stay off of the radar screen, that's also known as fraud. You know, it's just important to get it right.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I've had a lot of discussions with practice executives and. Uh, but oftentimes we talk about what, how, what are their, their financial focus for the, for the next year. And almost always they look at having within their practice a threefold approach. They try to be more efficient. They try to also be more productive. However, they oftentimes have told me that the most return on the investment that they have is to make sure that they're being paid correctly for the work they actually did. Finding lost charges, billing correctly. Because first, one, it prevents a potential for, uh, you know, compliance audit from either an insurance company or the federal government. But more importantly, that they're, they're now paid for the work they did. And that becomes a, a critical element of how, how to make sure that you maintain your, your anticipated budgets.
0: Yes, but I wouldn't say more importantly. Okay. And the reason I think it's more important to get the compliance side correct is because um, if you identify an overpayment, and you return it, you don't return it, you retain it Mm -hmm. after the deadline, that is actually considered a violation of the False Claims Act. Under the False Claims Act, not only could there be civil monetary penalties, uh, you can be excluded from federal health care programs. There can actually be imprisonment. Uh, Civil monetary penalties can be Three times the damages, but in addition to that, there can be over twenty thousand dollars per claim. So these penalties can be very, very yeah. stiff, and that is why it's uh, very important to get this this whole look back period, because at that point it's self identified. If the government comes in, it's no longer self identified, and that's where you can come yeah. in under the False Claims Act. Okay.
1: Well, let's let's talk about a proactive approach, um, oftentimes called a compliance program. So what should a practice be doing? How would you suggest an executive address the problem and making sure they have a, a compliance program that's going to be effective?
0: So part of that compliance program is to follow what the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, set up in 2015. They have a fraud risk management framework, and they also have some leading practices that they have published. But you can think about this in very simple terms of prevent, detect, And remedy. You start out first by having an organizational culture that is committed to combating fraud. And that is where the senior leadership demonstrates a commitment to this and they designate an entity within the whole uh, program there to lead fraud risk management activities, and then they ensure that that entity has defined responsibilities, and they make sure they have the necessary authority to actually fulfill the role and purposes. They plan regular fraud risk assessments. They design and implement strategies designed to control activities and to mitigate fraud risks and they focus mainly on on prevention and control but they use the results of their monitoring their evaluations their investigations to improve prevention detection and response uh, and then in addition to that there are compliance plans of course and the OIG does require a compliance plan audits are central to that, I do think that the OIG is makes a very uh, light recommendation in that there they say, "Oh, ten records per provider annually." Yeah, that might be a good place to start. But if you find any problem there, that's when you go back, you do training, and then you you reassess to make sure the training is is taking effect, so that might be a place to start but 10 10 records is probably not gonna get you where you want to go well that would be a
1: compliance plan so let's use an example, because I know a lot of organizations, they have internal staff who periodically will do an audit. When you are asked to do an audit, what happens when either you're reviewing on-site with a number of records or you request records to be sent to you? What do you do? First, I just want to talk about uh,
0: an internal audit versus an external okay. audit. So I would do an internal audit, even though I'm an external auditor. Mm-hmm. I think an external auditor is my personal opinion, but um, it, it makes sense. I think an external auditor is more effective because they're going to be more objective. But still, an external auditor for an internal audit, is that's a friendly audit. You take a collaborative approach with the providers, with everybody who's doing the billing, coding, and anybody who's involved in the process, and all we're trying to do is make things better. There's nothing punitive about it, it is collaborative and friendly. So again, that's where we get the records and we get the billing statements, the claim forms to see what was billed and then we see whether or not the documentation actually supports what was. Billed.
1: For each doctor that you go through the record search and the review, how long does it take?
0: Sometimes just uh, uh, to try to get the organization to understand what it is we're looking for, um, that that can take some time there. And then we got to get them put in order and, and whatnot. I can almost always tell you, oh, this provider doesn't understand X, Y, and Z. If they just understood those three things, their documentation would, in fact, support what they build. So it's pretty easy to, to pinpoint that, we also provide a, an analysis. We provide recommendations. You know, there's a lot about our findings, and, and there's yeah. a lot well, educational. I'm just
1: saying, there's it. an educational side because that's how you avoid problems in the future. Exactly. Yeah. And how receptive do you find physicians when they identify when you've identified through a, a compliance audit that there's a problem about making changes in what what they're doing? <laughs> It's usually the physicians who
0: are requesting it. And sometimes they have said, I've been asking for this for two or three years. I'm glad you're here because these are things that we haven't understood and we knew that we didn't understand them. We wanted to understand them.
1: Yeah, and that's not a surprise at all because mm-hmm. doctors, they want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oftentimes they haven't been given the resources. So you can help leverage the organization to give them resources. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Make sure that you're not missing anything in terms of revenue. Obviously, we all want that. But in addition to that, you want to make sure that you're not caught short on these uh, overpayments. And, you know, I mean, that's a very, very negative situation for everyone. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, I want to talk a little bit about fraud because that's your other certification and something that most practices... Obviously, they're, they're, you know, they're, 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 they have to be concerned about, but obviously it's something that uh, is it's very rare. But uh, what else, as we wrap up the issues on compliance, what would you like to summarize that organizations need to do to make sure that they're doing the right thing? So
0: they start with a very uh, simple audit, something that, that we do. When we find out then there's a problem, need to do a couple more things. We then need to get uh, into some statistical software. There is free software on the government site called RAT Stats. And the purpose of it is to make sure that you get the right sample to then say we can use the information from this sample to go back and audit and use the results of that audit to extrapolate and pay back. But more than that, then what is it that we're going to do in order to set up our audit plan and a teaching and training plan for the upcoming year? You have a a clear plan of action right from the beginning. You focus first on any of these errors which could uh, cause repayment risk. And so there are two things that you'd want to look at, you'd want to look at high dollar procedures, but you'd also want to look at high frequency services, like e or ones that you know that are, are very difficult at, you know, level 4, level 5, the, the new patients, or if it's inpatient, the initial encounter, the level 3s. They're very difficult to get to, and if people are, are billing them, and they're billing them frequently... Um, you know, you want to make sure that's being done uh, properly. And then you, you can have the, you can start to set up your training even from that. And also you're going to probably have to dig back and you're going to have to look at, you know, use some extrapolation. You're going to have to look at, at the six year. But from there, then you start your plan going forward. Okay, how can we prevent any of this from, from happening? and uh, what kind of training is going to be involved.
1: Uh, how often should an organization consider having a formal audit? It, it
0: cannot be less than once a year. Um, and like I said, these you know 10 to 12 charges are not enough. That's just the place to start. That's just where you begin unraveling the thread. I bring it back to what one of the things that we just talked about if you identify an overpayment but you you know now you've gone through your audit right you've you've identified that you have uh, an overpayment if you don't pay it back you fail to pay that back you retain those funds that is actually the basis of and has been the basis of in the past whistleblower Suits. That's what you want. <laughs> That's what you want to avoid. You want yeah. to avoid that. You want right. to avoid that. Yep. That's certainly one thing that I I know from uh, my my training and my experience in that. Um, but it all it all ties in together. The whole auditing, and you know, fraud. You don't have to have an intent to defraud to actually be held liable under the False Claims Act. And
1: and civil penalties. Right. Uh, Okay. Well, let's, you know, because I know this happens obviously very frequently, and it's usually part of the Medicare Advantage contract that the physician group has with the insurer, because the insurer is looking to increase its payments for Medicare. And Medicare, of course, recognizes that its capitation is per member, per month, uh, payment, which is based on the Medicare payment for that area, but also recognizes if they have sicker patients, there's an increase in that payment. Right. So I know practices, oftentimes they get requests for a insurer to come in and review their records for that purpose, or to provide records to an insurer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what What recommendations would you give to a practice who receives this request from their insurance carrier?
0: Well, uh, believe it or not, uh, people have actually ignored these. Uh, I would recommend against that. Um, they, they won't go away. Um, they don't go quietly into the night. Um, you're just making uh, more problems for yourself. So obviously, uh, you know, quick response. And there, there are, there's a, a timely uh, response. Right. And, and
1: this is usually part treatment. of the, this is in the contract.
0: Right. Um, Now, one thing we didn't really talk about is what about other payers? We talked about federal government. You know, a lot of this goes by state, and some of it goes by payer and whatnot, but um, you could expect the proverbial knock on your door from um, a a private insurer as well, and um, there are the things that I talked about under the uh, False Claim Act, that's you know, federal, but there are also uh, state civil penalties and, and so forth, and there's they can be very similar to the federal ones. So it's not just the uh, federal government
1: that you have to be... Well, I'm going to ask a few ending questions and things to talk about. One is, what resources are available through MGMA to an organization who has concerns?
0: Well, uh... For one thing, we would be happy to come in and uh, do an audit or at least help you to to set up what needs to be done for your audit and to let you know what what you need to do if you're finding problems in that audit. But we also have a compliance plan toolkit online that you you can find. And uh, so that would uh, help quite a bit. And it's under resources on the mgma.com
1: site. Yeah. Also, if somebody had a question specifically for you, how can they contact you?
0: There's, we have Ask an Advisor. And the actual address for that, but it, it is on the very first, the landing page for mgma.com. It says Ask an Advisor. And uh, there's a little button. Uh, it's in it's in blue, and it says "Learn More." And then you can actually fill this out uh, with your name and email address and whatnot. Uh, you put your question there, and you say "Submit," and mysteriously and miraculously, it, it lands on
1: our desk. And you get and you get the email, and you get to respond. Yes. And that is a that's a complimentary, no cost
0: benefit, is that right? For members only.
1: That's right. Okay, Beverly, if somebody wanted to contact you directly, uh, they can just call the MGMA toll-free number Mm -hmm. 877-275-6462 and then then go to your extension. What's your extension?
0: My extension is 1258.
1: 1258, excellent. Uh, Most appreciative of the time you have today. Any last comments?
0: I think that probably the compliance is the a big takeaway for today
1: yeah I agree I think appliance is it's oftentimes uh, ignored by many organizations something they need to be very aware of and there's things they can do internally and there's things they may want to have an external help which you you've provided to many organizations I want to thank you for your time and um, you know any any one more comment
0: I have uh, noticed that most organizations, are actually either maintaining their spending on compliance or even increasing it because we are in this risk-averse, audit-prone environment. And there are very few organizations that are actually decreasing their compliance dollars and only about 7% of organizations So that tells you that there is a a big emphasis, and rightly so,
1: on compliance. Beverly, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. I think you've given some very good, insightful information that is extremely valuable. Thank you. Thank you, Dave.